0: Welcome to the Breaking Boundaries Podcast. I'm Annalise Riles, Executive Director of Northwestern University's Roberta Buffett Institute for Global Affairs. The Northwestern Buffett Institute is dedicated to breaking through traditional silos of expertise, geography, culture, and language to surface novel solutions to pressing global challenges. This spring, we have been focusing on United Nations Sustainable Development Goal 16, which is peace, justice, and strong institutions. Today's guest, Romain Murenzi, says building scientific capacity is essential to strong institutions and supporting problem-solving innovation, especially in developing nations. Dr. Morenzi is executive director of the World Academy of Sciences, a multilateral organization administered by the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization and funded by the Italian government. And it supports scientists and scientific innovation in the global south. Welcome, Romain. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for this invitation.
0: Let's start a little bit with your personal journey as a scientist. You were born in Rwanda, raised as a refugee in Burundi, and started your career as a high school math teacher in the early 1980s in rural Burundi. Can you tell us a little bit what your life was like as a child and where the spark to study science and physics came from?
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. And my family was uh, exiled uh, in Burundi in early 60s. I did my primary school, secondary. School and college in, in Burundi. So growing up as a, a as a refugee in, in Bujumbura, the, the capital city, there were two cultural centres there: the French cultural centre and the American cultural centre, Centre culturel américain et Centre culturel français. And we used to go there and had opportunity to get access to books. And the, in the American one. Actually, there were uh, many books of scientists, Thomas Edison and, and other scientists, uh, in Albert Einstein, you know, the history of, of physics and, and, and science uh, and, and space. That gave me actually a dream. To really be a scientist and also in the French one I was able to have a chance to read the, the life of Marie Curie you know how she traveled from Poland and went to France and this kind of story when I was uh, really in, in what I would call middle school interested me a lot but it happened also that I was very lucky I was uh, good in math uh, during th- throughout the, my high school I was the best uh, kids in, in, in math so that was added in the fact that I wanted really to do science. So basically, I could say that sparked me to do science. And then later in, in life, when uh, I finished my, my, my bachelor's degree, I wanted to be, to be a math teacher. After my, my bachelor's degree in, uh, in mathematics, rather than having a job at the university, I was sent in rural area to teach mathematics in an all girl school. And uh, a year later, I was brought back to the capital to teach the, the best two schools in in the country. It's a long story, but I ended up actually being the best math teacher of the country during that that period. During that period, also, I tried to get a scholarship for a PhD because as a refugee, I could not get a PhD from the government. I could not even be having a teaching assistantship. So basically, after three years of struggling, I was able to get a, a scholarship to go to the Catholic University of Louvain. In Louvain, I had a chance for tremendous growth, not only scientifically, but uh, as a human, as a person, because the environment was really good. They gave me an opportunity to travel. Actually, with my work in, in, in mathematical physics, I was given an opportunity to, very early on, to go to King's College of London, Queen Mary College. I went to, to Rome. I visited cities such as Marseille, uh, Bordeaux, and Paris. I had a chance to benefit from the European mobility, and that really made me not only a mathematical physicist, but also at the same time also to know Europe. Although I'm not European, but you feel like you are European. Wherever I went, I was actually received very well. I didn't even uh, remember that I was was African or black in in some sense, because I was embedded in this young European when we were discussing mathematics and physics. That was really, very interesting. And then uh, in 1990, I had a job in Paris. Uh, at the University of Paris to be a teaching assistant, but also to do research. I spent six months in Paris and then I got a postdoc in Toulouse, the south of France. But uh, you have a lot of science institutions. I got a job in this uh, European center called Centre Européen de Formation Avancé en Calcul Scientifique, a European center for uh, advanced uh, computation and research in scientific computation. Actually, it was... One of the best scientific computation in, in, in Europe. And I was the only African there. So during that period, I learned not only to link mathematical physics and computation. This is what actually two years later in 1992 gave me an opportunity to be hired at a newly created center for NSF, the Center for Theoretical Studies of Physical Systems at Clark Atlanta University, which is an HBCU, historical black college. From 1992 to 2001, and that is, I had an opportunity for growth, not only scientifically, but also again as a human being, by the end of the decade, by, by 2001, actually nine years later, I had become a U.S. citizen. I had become a chair of the physics department, but I was, I was a full professor of physics. At that time, my second dream, which was to work for my country of origin, seemed to be very, very far. But I was very wrong. In 2001, in the spring, I received a, a call, uh, somebody asking me, saying that the government of Rwanda was inquiring if I was interested in being a minister of education of the country.
0: What an incredible story, Roma. And just imagining you as a middle school student already able to read both French and English, and I imagine speaking at least one or two other languages. What a a remarkable talent you were even at that age. Tell us a little bit, why did you choose to return to Rwanda when you were invited? What was it that drew you away from this wonderful position as chair of a physics department in the United States?
1: After the, the, the genocide against the Tutsi in 1994, basically many young people who actually dreamed about returning back to their country of birth, actually there was a massive return of exiled Rwandans. Exiled Rwandans. From all over the world, in particular from the, the neighboring countries, Burundi, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Tanzania, Uganda, but also many actually Rwandans who left their safe positions in, in Europe and in North America. To return back to Rwanda. Uh, Even a friend of mine, Dr. Uh, Charles Murigande, was a professor at Howard University and decided just to return, to return back. So, um, from 1994, I I continued to think, how can I do to help? So, in 1996, in February, actually in the spring, Mrs. Claire Richardson, the CEO of the DFGFI, the Diana Force Gorilla Fund International, and I visited Rwanda, the University of Rwanda to see how we can help. I was sponsored by the FOSI Fund and also Clark Atlanta University. During that historic visit, actually, I, I visited, I observed two things. In terms of infrastructure, the building were okay. However, the books and the computing facility were destroyed. In particular, all the computers were stolen. Secondly, most of the teachers were foreign. they were still teachers from neighboring countries. Because most teachers Rwandan teachers, or they were killed, or they they were the killers. So it, do you imagine some of the teachers killed their own colleagues? These things—that's how mad the the madness of the genocide was. And then, uh, so I could see that. And when I returned back to the U.S., I, I sent a note to my uh, other the Rwandan community what I saw. And and uh, since that time, I will go to Rwanda to teach a class in physics every summer. And I think that may have uh, uh, caught the attention of the government because not many people were coming to do that. I'll bring some books, you know, like we do, like the Boy Scout, you know. Sometimes I tell people from diaspora, you don't need to wait until you bring a big lab. No, no, no. Just go there and do something every year. So I, I did that. I, I even when, when, when I go to Rwanda, I will jump in Burundi and give a seminar. So then, and again, that's where in 2001, when I received the call, actually, I didn't hesitate for, for two reasons. Actually, when I received a call, I said, probably this is the right time. Uh, not only I have published enough, so I thought I was already a full professor, but most importantly, because of a part among the exiles, the the, the returnees were my, my siblings. There were seven siblings uh, who were living in, in Burundi with, with their uh, their families have returned. And each time I went there, I could see them, how they were struggling. You know, so I said, hmm, this give me not an opportunity to work for the country, but also to be, to be with my siblings for quite some time. So then I requested the university, Clark Atlanta University, to give me a leave of absence uh, for two years. Actually, when I left, I thought I was going to stay for two years, but I stayed for eight years. <laughs>
0: That's incredible. I love that idea that we can just do a, a good action every day. We don't have to wait for the great bolt of lightning. Tell us a little bit now about the World Academy of Sciences and your work there.
1: So as you know, the, the World Academy of Sciences was created in nineteen eighty three by Abdul Salam. To, to understand the the World Academy of Sciences, you need to understand Abdul Salam. Abdul Salam was a physicist from Pakistan. he's a Muslim but come from from a small sect in in that in from that country, which brings also challenges of integration in his own country when he returned back home actually he was not being integrated he was not integrated and I think at some point even his life was threatened so as a young man he he decided to return back to the u k It happened that he had a vision, so he decided uh, as uh, in 1964 to start the International Center for Theoretical Physics here in Trieste. Uh, He he had the idea and then he worked with other scientists here in Trieste who helped him to do that. His idea was that uh, I was not able to stay in my own country. If I could create a center where scientists from the developing country could come and spend some time and return back home would be a very good thing. So he decided to create the academy uh, with the idea of being a voice for science for the developing world and also advancing science. In the developing world. The academy is going to celebrate uh, 40 years uh, 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 next year. So this is something that is uh, actually very, 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 very interesting. So this means that advancing science in the developing world, there, it has two components. The first component, you have some kind of programs, but also you have also actions. Programs of building science capacity in the South, PhD program. We have what we call South-South Fellowship program. China, India, Malaysia, South Africa, Brazil, and now Turkey is joining. This country that have made it, the country of the South that has made it to development, this country are donating fellowships for PhD. Now we have one, more than 1,200 students doing PhD in the centers in the South. So we call it South-South Fellowship Program. But we have also what you call mobility. We want somebody who is in a lab in the South to come in the North and spend one, two to three months. When I say the North means developed develop countries.
0: Tell us what kind of engagement can we universities in the global North have? How can we contribute to this really important effort that you're making? So
1: there are two ways that could be could contribute. We have a program called Expert. Somebody from the North will, will go to Africa and spend one, two to three months in a particular university. He can teach he can give support in terms of capacity building, institutional capacity building. But what is very important, if if the person, for example, he links with a professor, let's like say in Burundi, for example, or uh, in Benin, that professor, they can work together and publish together. So once the person has left, actually he leaves something there. And we have concrete examples. But also a mobility. Mobility means that uh, you could invite somebody to spend one month at the university. A PhD sometimes is, is difficult because there is a uh, the brain drain, but if somebody can come and spend one month, two to three months will be good. For example, if your uh, institution, the, the Buffett Institute, for example, would like to sponsor some young scientists to come and spend some time on the issue related to sustainable development and, and their own area of, of, uh, of expertise, chemistry, biology, but you link with some of your programs, that will be very good.
0: Let me just ask you, finally, a question that I ask all of my guests, which is, as you think about the future, what keeps you up at night? What are you most worried about? But also, what are you most hopeful for?
1: <laughs> for these days of the COVID-19, uh, my worry is there is another pandemic. Africa and many poor countries have already basically lost two years of learning. If that happen again, they may It may slide and lose more years of learning, and that may have re- a real impact on achieving the, the the sustainable development goals. So that part would make me worried these days. Uh, this is why uh, I think that um, investment in broadband is very important. During my time as a minister uh, of, of education and science in Rwanda, I was trying to promote computers in schools, but people would say, you don't need a computer. You need to build the classroom. So people thought that classroom was more important. But uh, you realize, actually, even to have a book, it's not easy in those countries. But if you have a computer, you can store all the books that you want. My son here in Trieste went to school every day online, like if he was in the classroom. He didn't miss a class. Uh, So are other kids in in Europe and mostly in in North America and other developed places. But uh, when I think about the other ones, countries as Benin, Cameroon, and other places, this kid didn't have that. And that can be very dramatic if that happen again. Yeah. But my, my second thing is, is also because now people think that science is very important. Actually, over the years, we have understood the importance that science actually is important. If you want to reduce poverty, you need to grow your economy. And you cannot grow your economy if you, you don't invest in science and technology. So that is something that is very, very important. So I, I will finish with, with one example. In the early 2000, before 2000, the coffee of Rwanda was fetching fetching at the market probably $0.5 per kilo. And there was this USAID program or project with uh, Michigan State University and Texas A&M University and University of Rwanda for washing coffee uh, station. A coffee washing station is an appropriate technology. It is a, a very well-known technology. However, for the farmers of East Africa and Central Africa, Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, this technology was not known or they didn't ha- have access to it. So giving them access to that technology created a whole way of seeing things and doing things and innovation. So having washing the coffee, drying it properly, sorting the beans, the coffee went from 0.5 to $5 per kilo, sometimes $10 per kilo, even the coffee of Rwanda going into in the, the shelves of uh, Costco and, uh, and Starbucks. This means that from a farmer who has 1,000 kilo going from $500 to $5,000, <laughs> even to more than that, it changed completely the life of people. So this means that with a tremendous economic growth during that period, just based on that small example, because the technology is applied. So, so there is there are a lot of technologies that exist already. In the US, you need to create new technologies because you have almost used all these technologies. But in, in the global south, in, in the least developed countries, these technologies have not been used. If they can be harnessed and be used, that can change the life of people. So in that, that's really, that's my hope, to continue to do that. Yeah.
0: Well, what a fantastic story. Roman Morenzi, you are a remarkable example of the change that science can bring to the world. And we're so grateful for you being here today. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you, it is
0: For more information on this episode and on the Northwestern Buffett Institute for Global Affairs, visit us at buffett.northwestern.edu.